Hello and welcome to Newspeak, the New Culture Forum's weekly look at the news agenda, as you know by now. I'm very pleased to be joined, as usual, by our senior fellow, Rafe Hadelman-Ku, historian and world commentator. And again, and again, I'm very pleased to be joined by Amy Gallagher. And that's the woman behind Stand Up to Woke and Can Campaigner. Um, well, I mean, I'm starting off in a very jolly way, but actually they're very serious topics this week. Uh, there was a staple, wasn't there, of school debating societies, which is, should we have capital punishment? Should we bring back capital punishment? That suddenly has come up again in the light of these simply appalling murders that have happened um, at the hospital with uh, Lucy Letby uh, recently. Suddenly we have reignited this discussion. So we're going to be talking about that. And then also... Um, if you're a white young family, it seems you're not a real Londoner. Uh, that's certainly according to Sadiq Khan or Sadiq Khan's uh, guide to his branding that is coming out of City Hall at the moment. Um, unbelievable anti-white prejudice there coming out. Um, first of all, capital punishment, should we bring it back? Did you ever take part in those kind of debates at school? I know that I did. Mm. But it's being framed at the moment, quite rightly, in terms of a child killer such as this nurse, Lucy Letby, mm. should be put to death by the state. I mean, I mean, what do you think of that? I mean, I'm not for capital punishment. I'm against capital punishment. But it does interest me that a lot of the polls are showing that about 50%, it's about 50-50 in terms of mm. what the population thinks, which is quite interesting because generally a lot of people would describe it as being a sort of beyond the pow opinion, whereas actually it's not. There's a lot of people in favour of it. Um, I mean, obviously it's been reignited by this case of Lucy Letby um, because people feel so strongly about it and it's obviously such an awful, awful crime. Um, I guess, I mean, it's not a very popular thing to say at the moment, but because uh, people feel so strongly about it, but it's, it's, you know, it's not without outside the realms of possibility that there could be a miscarriage of justice here. I know, I mean, it seems very likely. How do you mean? Well, it seems to me that she did it, but, you know, in, in, I mean, there was a recent story of a, of a case of a man called um, Andrew Malkinson, mm, yeah, yeah. who was imprisoned for rape and he was in prison for about 13 years and new evidence has recently come to light, DNA evidence, which has shown that actually you know, it's proved that he's innocent and he's been released. Um, I mean, the case of Lucy Lippe, it seems, you know, very, it seems, I mean, I think she's, she did it and the jury found that she did it. But, you know, the, unless there is absolute concrete physical, you know, video evidence of somebody murdering someone, there, there is always, I know it's not a very nice thing to say for the families and everybody that's been hurt by this, but there is a small chance that there has been a miscarriage of justice. And because of that, that's one of the reasons why I'm against capital punishment. I'm also against it because a lot of serial killers, a lot of people that commit multiple murders, they have such a disregard for human life, they also have a disregard for their own life. Mm. And they very often will commit suicide or attempt to commit suicide straight after they've been mm. caught. So mm. Wayne Cousins, the, the police officer that murdered Sarah Everard, he attempted to kill himself straight after he was caught. Harold Shipman hung himself in prison. As mm. I understand it, Lucy Letby has been put on suicide watch in prison. Mm. So often, I know people want these people to be punished, but actually life imprisonment is often a worse punishment than, uh, you know, ending their life mm. for some of them. So you know, um, Rafe, 
Uh, Amy says there, you know, it would seem like a beyond the pale view. Actually, it was quite the reverse. It was always quite a strong majority uh, for capital punishment in this country until really quite recently. It was looking like 70, 60, 70 percent. So it's now, as you say, mm. pretty much evenly, uh, you know, evenly balanced. And you come down on same side. Is that right? Or yes, not much of a debate here, but uh, a very interesting topic to actually get into the reasons why. Mm. Because certainly, I, I mean, I agree with Amy. I'm very tough on law and order. I want harsher penalties for our prisoners, and I want harsher treatment and conditions for, for our prisoners too. But in terms of the death penalty itself, look, my reasoning is very simple. Uh, more than 50 people have been wrongly convicted of murder in this country since the 1970s. And you can't just isolate one case like Lucy Letby. That's not how the law's applied. The law's applied in general to people who murder have you reached the criteria. And by that scale, there were in America, for example, which only has a few de death penalty states now, 130 people who've been sentenced to death since the 1970s have been found to be innocent. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the old principle we had for our jury system was that it's better that 10 men go free than one man should be imprisoned. I think it's even more relevant when it comes to the death penalty, which is it's better that 10 men face life in prison without parole yeah. rather than one innocent person be executed. And you have to realize, yes, you just mentioned, we just had this Andrew Malkinson uh, person uh, last week or two weeks ago, 17 years in jail he spent. And remember also the, you know, one of the most tragic, heart-wrenching stories, which is one of the reasons that we got the end to the death penalty, which was Timothy Evans, mm -hmm. who was the young man who was uh, renting a room from John Christie, the notorious resident of 10 Rillington Place. As in the film. Uh, who, mm -hmm. The film with, with um, uh, David Richard Attenborough playing him, um, who killed, uh, John Christie killed this man's wife and daughter, mm -hmm. but it was Timothy Evans who went on trial mm -hmm. and he was hanged. I mean, a heart-wrenching story, and we simply can't have the possibility of those things happening. And the other thing is, as Amy said too, I'd, I think death is an easy, quick way out. It's too lenient. Mm. I want these people to actually suffer, not just from the prospect of having a long time in prison, but also looking over their shoulder every single day. Because the people that get the death penalty are those who've killed children, or who've been sadistic, or who've tortured, or been serial killers, the very worst types of murderers. And we know full well, as happened to Ian Huntley or uh, Jeffrey Dahmer in America, those are the ones that fellow prisoners, talk about being judged by your own peers, when you're in prison, you'll get that, you know, that knife in the back or that broomstick where it shouldn't go. And I think that th fear and threat is actually the sort of situation I want them to feel the suffering that um, the, their victims did. Also, I think that they deny them the basic comforts that we have in prison at the moment. You know, everyone has a much, cush much cushier time today than in the 1970s. I like to see the conditions roll back to the very basics. And, you know, why not have a return of the chain gang, for example? Why not actually do what they do in America and have people actually contribute back to society? Clean the street, cleaning graffiti, picking up litter for lower level crimes, but maybe hard labor for, for rapists and serial murderers. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Would you, I mean, what about this argument, which is an emotional one, but it, is it because it was children, it was sort of different? Um, I, I mean, I, obviously it's awful. It's an awful crime. Um, and I can understand, I think, I think coming to what Ray said, I can understand why people emotionally want that person dead. They, because it's so awful, it's so mm. awful to face, to think about that somebody could be capable of doing that. You just want it gone, you know, just get, get mm. rid of her. Mm. Um, but I think, um, as you were saying, it's, you know, prison is often, I mean, 
the thing is, I think why people feel so strongly is because, you know, Pitch has come out of prison and it seems like it's, it's quite comfortable for people in prison. So that is why people feel like, no, they should be should be put mm -hmm. to death. If, if prison was, as Rafe was saying, a much stronger deterrent and it was a place where you know somebody is really not going to have a nice time, then I think people would f possibly feel differently about the death penalty. But I think people think, well, why should the state pay to look after someone mm -hmm. and, and they get a roof over their head, they get a kind of a more comfortable life than, say, a homeless person or some people in very, very poor com accommodation. Mm -hmm. Why should they be allowed to have that? So I think, yeah, I, I think maybe it would be seen a bit differently if people knew that prison was an absolutely awful place to be. Yeah, I mean, it's got to be a hostile environment. Mm. It's one of those terms, hasn't it? I mean, I think, I don't know whether you, you find this, but I've never quite got this selective argument. You know, like, it's often used about terrorists, the same thing, or babies. You sort of think it's either one or the other. You know, you mm. either have it or you don't. Well, it's rather similar to giving a heftier sentence if, if a crime is racially aggravated, for example. Yes. So if a white person and a black person are crossing the street, they both get mugged by different people. But if one is racist, then he gets a higher, you know, even though the injuries are the same for the two people. Um, but that being said, so, for example, in Singapore, the death penalty is applied blank wise. It's a uniform thing, whereas in in America, it's actually the judge's discretion and the judge will actually give the death penalty if it's children, if it's uh, if there's torture, sadism in there, if it goes beyond just simple murder and there's an element there. So the, we do have in this world two, two different types of death penalty being applied. Mm -hmm. One is much more subjective in, 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 in how, it's, how it's applied. But yeah, I'm, I'm in complete agreement with, with Amy and all of this. I think the problem is I find, because I'm sort of slightly on the fence, you know, you're not in a nest of liberals here, don't worry. Um, slightly on the fence in this, in the sense that um, it's not a moral thing in, in, with me, it's purely whether it works or not, you know, actually, whether it's an ex expedient thing, whether it actually works. And I do get that sort of feeling where, my goodness, right, so this, take this woman. Um, how old is she? 20 what? She's She was in her 20s. early 20s when she started committing a crime. So, so basically you're talking about, what, now. 40 years, 50 years of basically being kind of, you know, kept alive and looked after. Okay, she might go through mental anguish, uh, untold mental anguish, or maybe she won't. But the fact is, is that we're paying for it. I think that the problem is this, and this is the one main, I, I don't know what your view is on this, is that I feel that when someone is still alive, it is the natural human consequence, a natural human reaction to relate to them. So you find you become more sympathetic to them. You find that you try and find out if they're not there anymore, then you can't do that. But you, you sort of can, if you've read in cold blood, you know, by um, Truman Capote, the same thing, you find that you're actually starting to understand them. And therefore, I, that's a, a road to hell is paved with good intentions, I think. That. Do, you, do you see my point? Mm -hmm. yeah? I, I do, but, uh, but just to go on the, on, the cost, on the cost side, actually, once you have a death penalty, then the legal system actually goes into overdrive and giving you a, a chances to appeal and the costs of appealing this. I mean, we know in America how many years people are on death row. And one of the reasons that New York and New Jersey abolished the death penalty was because of the, the huge cost. Mm -hmm. Hundreds of millions of dollars were spent and they actually didn't execute anybody because of the legal system and the, the length of time that people were being put there. So I don't think it actually it stands the test to say that it's not that uh, paying 
paying for the cost of people is uh, is too much when actually it will probably works out about the same if not more expensive yeah. to have the legal costs mm -hmm. and again as I say the other thing to do women's prisons are a lot more pleasant than men prisons women aren't as violent but I'm pretty sure if you've killed babies your life is going to be hell in a prison where women's maternal instincts will kick in and think, my God, what have you done you know, to these poor women? And I think her life will be a living hell every single day. Now, whether she's murdered or not, I don't know, but I'm certain she'll be assaulted in prison and perhaps may have to go into solitary confinement or something mm -hmm. for her own safety. That's, a, that's actually part of it. But the other, the final thing I want to say is that there's been no evidence at all that the death penalty is a deterrent. Mm -hmm. And you can just see that by America's high crime rate. You know, Florida is not a safe place to go to. Uh, there's no, all around the world, there's been no evidence about that. What is a deterrent is knowing you will be caught and knowing that if you do, that your punishment will be harsh. But yeah. the death penalty itself isn't the deterrent. In some ways, is it not a kind of, um, it's a distraction. Uh, if you, I'm all for making the legal system about 100% harsher. But it, by just putting the death penalty there, it's almost like a sop, isn't it? Mm. I mean, it wouldn't be used very much anyway, would it? No, and I don't think for, for people who are absolutely psychopathic, narcissistic killers who have a compulsion to kill, nothing is going to stop them. I don't think it would be a deterrent, as Rafe says, it, it, evidence shows that it's not. She, you know, she was absolutely you know, compelled to repeat these crimes again and again and again. Um, and she, you know, she's still in denial. I don't. Th these people aren't rational. They're, they're, you know. Well, they're how would you actually analyse her? This is oh, your no. field, isn't yeah. it? I mean, you know, I mean, yeah. seriously, because people are sort of saying, what um, motivated her? And we get this stupid stuff like her parents were very smothering, and all that. You know, hang on, I mean, my parents were quite smothering. Yeah, actually. people are overanalyzing yes. a little bit. I mean, I imagine she has, you know, psychopathic, as I said, psychopathic, narcissistic traits, and. Those types of people absolutely cannot stand vulnerability and neediness and weakness in others because it makes them aware of their own neediness and weakness. Really? Yeah, which as psychopaths, they, they want to be godlike and empower all the time. So there is a compulsion to, to get rid of anything that's weak and vulnerable and needy. And obviously a baby is the most needy, vulnerable, you know, human form that you can, that, that, that there is. Mm. So I guess in that moment of killing, she is destroying the weakness and vulnerability in the baby, but also in herself. And in that moment, she is absolutely all powerful, all in control. And then, of course, after the murder, she goes back to being a kind of a, you know, ordinary human being and that she can't tolerate. So that's the compulsion to keep doing it again and again. Yes. I guess that's how we'd think about it psychologically. Mm. Um, I mean, it's interesting because I, I was just watching um, Dr. Raj Perso, who's a well-known mm. psychiatrist, yeah. talking about this, this very case. And he said it's possible she's a psychopath, obviously. Um, but he said also there's a possibility that she is part of this code blue set of, um, of nurse serial killers that you see, particularly in America. Code blue is when they deliberately create a situation where the medics have to rush in and try and save a life. And the adrenaline rush that they get is from actually creating a scene whereby everyone has to come and really? work to save the life. And that may explain why not all of the babies actually died, because mm. she was actually just trying to put them into a state of jeopardy and just loved, the, they got a thrill from toying with death. That's one of the theories. There's a long history of these code blue nurses in America. And code then blue being code blue is when you need to resuscitate somebody oh, yeah. that goes out and then all the ER chaps, the A and E chaps, come in to try and do something. And then the, the, the other theory is that it's similar to Harold Shipman. A lot of medics, particularly doctors and nurses, get a god complex mm. that they have the power to decide 
who lives and who dies. Mm -hmm. And there's that thrill of actually saying, well, you're going to die, you're going to live. And then the ship, we saw what Shippen was doing. And the most fascinating of all about this, apparently, is that, I mean, there have been about 30 to 50 of these nurses killing patients mm -hmm. around the world. And this is quite a phenomenon. All of them, and nurses are male, about 50-50, male and female. Every male nurse who's done this has done it to an elderly patient. Mm. Male nurses? Male nurses have never done it to children, always mm. to elderly patients. It's female nurses that kill babies. Yeah. And yes. I think that tells you a lot about the psychology at play here. Yes, mm. and it's a, it's a resentment. I mean, it's, it's a resentment towards the you know, mothering, isn't it? That they maybe possibly can't mother yeah. themselves. They can't find that in them. So they can't possibly, there's envy towards the parents. There's envy of you know, the family, exactly. something that they can't be a part of. Didn't she say... Or didn't, isn't there some evidence that she thought she would never have a family? Mm, she wrote that there? down, I yeah. will never have a husband, I will never have a well, family. Why was she saying that, actually, do you think? Well, potentially. I mean, I guess if she hasn't got those capacities, she, she, at some level she knows she hasn't got those capacities in herself, that mm. she you know, lacks empathy, lacks compassion, mm. which you would do if you're able to kill then she, she, realized, she knows at some level there's something wrong with her, that she, mm. she can't form relationships, she can't form that compassion. Mm. So this is like absolute rage at mm. her, something that's lacking in her. Mm. You know, what's interesting as well about the, coming back to the capital mm. punishment thing as well, is that there's this sort of strange, when do people get really riled up? They get riled up, um, Myra Hindley type mm. cases. Right. Someone obviously seriously mentally disturbed, psychopathic, mm. you know, deranged. Uh, that, is the, that is the reason to have capital punishment. When it comes to someone like Ruth Ellis, the first, last woman to be hanged in Britain, um, you know, uh, it, oh, poor Ruth, you know, she, we understand she, she killed the guy who was cheating on her. Mm. But actually, if you... Look at it logically, isn't she exactly the kind of person who should be killed, therefore? Uh, Not your French, there's a crime of passion, isn't no, it? So. Well, except they're the only people who have that. Yeah. But, but do, do you see well, what I mean? Mm. She had mens rea. It wasn't just actus reas, it was mm. mens rea. She yes. had that, and she I knew see. what she was doing, whereas you could argue, couldn't you, that people like Myra Hindi were just, like, sick. Mm. Yeah, it's an interesting point, yeah. I mean, how are we judging morality, I guess, is, is the question. But the thing is, it's always those people that are used to justify why we should have capital punishment. Not, oh, no, not Ruth Ellis, she was, she was driven to it. Oh, no, 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 that is the worst type, actually. You know, it's mm. killing someone because of that, you know. Yeah, there's a good debate about it. I mean, as we discussed on the last time we were together, we discussed the, the brains of psychopaths, right? Yes. Where we actually can tell yeah. about psychopaths' brains. And there are many more psychopaths in society, but they haven't been triggered, usually because they haven't had bad childhood mm. upbringing. Mm. Although this woman didn't have an abusive childhood growing up either. Um, but yes, so do you then, if someone, if someone can't help being a psychopath, Mm. then do they deserve the death penalty or should they be put into a mental asylum or institution yes, for the rest yeah, of their lives? Yeah, yeah. Mm. Um, obviously you've worked in, you know, that's your, this is yes. your area. When we've talked about this, uh, when we've read about recently these kind of uh, remarks that have been made and so, some very good pieces, I'm thinking of Alison Pearson's mm. in The Telegraph, where she talks about the general culture of the NHS. Yeah. I mean, do you... Does that ring true with you at all, this idea that somehow or other it is all about covering your own back mm. and not being judgmental in any way and seeing her as the victim almost? 
Yeah, I mean, as someone who works in the NHS, they're always going on and on about the freedom to speak up. You know, if you mm. see anything suspicious, raise it with someone. But of course, as we've seen through this and many other countless examples, when you do do that, actually the NHS really turns on you. I mean, some of these doctors, even, you know, pe paediatric consultants mm. um, who are quite up the hierarchy, who you yeah. think would people would take seriously, they were accused of bullying her, of, of, of being unprofessional of yeah. speaking inappropriately they were shut down this is what the nhs does i mean i know it's a very very different topic but i'm, I'm at the moment i'm reading hannah barnes's time to think about mm. the tavistock and it, there are parallels in the way whistleblowers are treated and that there's a there's a cover-up there's a you know keep quiet smooth things over and it's only till you get to the point of legal action and that that people start to say oh we can't cover this up anymore Mm. Um, so the NHS does have, yeah, have form with this. They, because there's no accountability. Mm. Um, you know, as we've seen in the way that she was treated. Mm. I mean, even after there was this big investigation into her for accusations of murdering babies, she was still allowed to go back onto the unit yeah, and be yeah, around yeah, babies. Yeah. Now, as someone that worked throughout COVID uh, as a nurse, I saw how very easily people were moved from role, from different roles. Yes. She could so easily have been put in an administrative role yes, where she wasn't yes. near babies, yeah. but they wouldn't, they didn't do that. And you just think, why? Yeah. You know, it's, it's crazy actually. And also from what I can gather, she, like the, the babies were dying when she was on the night shift, they were dying at night. And then when she was off it, they stopped dying at night, but then started dying during the day. Yes, and one, of the, one of the interventions they did to, was they moved her from night shift to day shift, as though that would somehow do something. This is what the NHS, they want to be seen to be doing something. And it's mm. actually logically, if you think about that, why would moving her from night shift to day shift change anything? What, I mean, I'm not talking about capital punishment here, mm. but what should happen to these people, these bureaucrats who overlooked this? I think they should face criminal charges for negligence. Yeah, yeah. This is real. I mean, scandal is too mild a word to describe what's happened here. When you look at 2015 was the first time that this issue was raised by one of the, doc by one of the doctors, Stephen Brearley. And, you know, I think eight more things happened after that. Two babies died after that. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is serious stuff that's happened on their watch. You know, we talk, we, we, you know, we, we talk about how, how insidious the encroachment of HR has been into so many areas of public mm. life through bureaucracy mm. and so forth. But there's nowhere more uh, terrible than in, in the NHS, which allows this. And you just think, what sort of NHS administrator thinks they know more than a doctor, multiple doctors who have come forward, you know, and this whole fear of being sued or going before tribunals and so forth seems to be so off-putting that they're actually willing to put aside the learned assessment of medical practitioners. I think it's an absolute scandal, and they need, one of these characters has just moved to the south of France no. uh, yeah, really? to escape all of this sort of a thing. And the problem with the government is that because their inquiry is not a statutory inquiry. And a statutory inquiry is only an inquiry that can compel witnesses to give evidence. Right now, there's nothing to compel people to give evidence. And I think the government needs to pull its socks up on this. Move to the south of France. I mean, it's just, I mean, just one can only hope that they're going to be tormented, mm. you know, for the rest of their, rest of their days. One last point on this, actually. Well, I think it's interesting. I hate, I don't want to use these kind of necessarily biblical terms, but also it seems to be there's also a lack of imagination going on here in the sense that they just can't conceive of someone being that bad you know that we have grown up in a society in which crime is outside of yourself you've done it because of this or that generally speaking but when you get someone who seems to have had a entirely blameless life and all 
doing something like this, we, we simply can't comprehend it. Isn't that right? Yeah, I think that's right. And I think it is specifically because she was a nurse and nurses are mm. held up as being absolute saints, particularly because of COVID. And the NHS, you know, everybody always goes on about how wonderful the NHS staff are. You can't say anything bad about them. You know, they're, they're all you know, doing such a good job. And I think people, people very, because of that, people find it very hard to think that there can be, you know, nurses who maybe aren't great people, maybe, are, you know, do mm. have these, you know, uh, evil tendencies in them. Um, but yeah, it's, as you said, there's not, people are really searching for her childhood to find something they can cling mm. on to, to explain this. But it, it may well be that, you know, she, she, this is just her temperament. This is the way she was born. But I think people cannot, like you said, we're in, we're in a society now where everybody wants some answers that, you know, that, that there can't just be somebody who is just like this. I mean, do you, do, I mean, this is a, goes to the really nub of it, actually. Do you think you can be born bad? Yeah, absolutely. Without, yeah, I've just said that, yeah, psychopaths are born bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a question of how bad they become is a question of their life experience. Right. Mm. In other words, whether they become practicing or not. Yes, mm. of course. Um, but it's just, generally speaking, we are seen as a tabula rasa, aren't we? Yeah, yeah. but we have, we have psychopaths in life. I mean, the, the, the sociopaths and psychopaths are people who are running our top corporations, right? Who rise to the top of politics because those are the, you know, psychopaths don't only murder. Those are the people who will stab you in the back to get a promotion over you, who will do all manner of dirty deeds behind closed doors in order to advance themselves. Uh, and, you know, the power politics of business and politics is, is where you find these characters. Mm. Well, what's happened with this one as well is that everyone in his encore has sort of like bundled in and climbed on the bandwagon. So we had that Dr. Shola woman from the, um, uh, well, mostly from Good Morning Britain, isn't she, I think, um, saying that this was, that it was her whiteness enabled, enabled this to carry on. Unbelievable. Well, just crass is not, doesn't even begin to cover it. Um, but it's been generally a week for this kind of thing. I mean, we actually, at the very beginning of the week, last weekend actually, just, just missed our last show. There was this thing that emerged um, from City Hall. It was actually the guidelines um, for the mayor's branding. I mean, I'm surprised it goes on the website, but anyway. Um, and it was various photographs, you might have seen it, We'll put it up here, actually, so you can see it here. This was a picture put out of a just pretty ordinary white family, 2.5 kids or whatever. And um, this was basically said not to be used because it was, no, no, it was not representative of true Londoners or worse to that effect. Um, this, is this anti-white racism? Well, I don't see how you can describe it as anything else. It's clear anti-white racism. It stinks. It's you know, Khan's military is so rotten, and one hopes that this would be a sort of catalyst for change. Although I don't hold my breath on that whatsoever. I mean, let's just face facts. Here, you know, London is still 53, 54 percent majority white. 37 percent of that is white British, right? Um, there are four times more white people than black people, and yet he seems to think a photograph of black people is more representative of London, even though they're only 13% of the population. I mean, in what reality is a white family not representative of Britain? It's offensive to people alive today, but it's also offensive to the generations of Londoners who made London that, the great city mm -hmm. that it is. I think it's, it stinks to, the, to high heaven. Mm. This is, uh, obviously, you know, you're mm. fighting a case about anti-white racism, mm. actually, aren't you, in the... And it's just, I guess this comes as no kind of surprise to you. I mean, we're talking that City Hall is like the mothership 
of all of this stuff, actually, mm. anyway, isn't it? Mm. I mean, I think with this, it, I mean, I would inject a little bit of nuance. It didn't refer specifically to race. It, it said this, this family's not represented. It could have been about class. It could have been about them being a two-parent heterosexual family. It could have been all sorts of things. But I think people know now with Sadiq Khan, because he racializes everything, and this word representative is used so much in relation to mm, race. Mm. I think people's automatic assumption is that it's to do with the color of their skin. And I feel, you know, I, I think that's a pretty good argument to say that it was to do with their race. And, and also, if it was, as you say, if it was used with relation to a black family or an Asian family and there was some sort of criticism, people, everybody would jump and say, why are you saying that about a black family or an Asian family? But I think more broadly, it speaks to something about this, as I said, this notion of representation, which seems to be being used so indiscriminately and so in such a weaponized way that almost now any image of a group of people or any or sports team or anything, we're now looking at through this lens of is it representative? Mm. And firstly, what do we mean by that? Do we mean that every image has to be divided, as Rafe says, into you've got to have half white, you know, 13% mm. black, it's got to perfectly represent the demographic, which as I understand it from looking at the way it's used, that's not what people mean. People, people never say an image of all black or all Asian people is not representative. You know, there are, mm. there are Olympic uh, sports teams uh, where you will see all black or all, all Asian and nobody will comment about, well, that's not representative of the UK mm. because there are, you know, at, at a general level, at a national level, 80, I think 88 percent of the population are, are, are white. So it, it's just it's now being used as an attack to say we don't want white people. And that's why this image sort of represents that, because any image where there is too many white people or or will will be will be told as not being representative well i think when people, when people are complaining about this you know mm -hmm. or saying it's not just that it's oh this is annoying need to be representative it's the over representation isn't it i mean oh, yeah. when people talk about you mm. know ads on television which is absurd yeah. i mean they spot the white straight guy yeah. What is it? It's the gradual erasure, erasure of, of white people, and it's also there's also falls on Sadiq Khan's lap because, of course, Transport for London is under is falls under his remit, and you know if you can see a white person on an ad on the on the London Tube, for example, well, I'll give you I'll give you ten pounds for each one that you mm -hmm. see, and I'll still have ten pounds in my pocket. But yes, I mean I don't have a television, so when I do go to someone's house, mm -hmm. the television's on. I sort of play a game as to how long it will be before I see a white person. I may see a white woman at some point, but if I do see a white man on the rare occasions that I do it will either be an emasculated man yeah. who's, who's completely incapable and is being helped out by somebody <laughs> or it'll be somebody who is the the, the villain in, in the ad you know mm -hmm. as we saw with Sadiq Khan's uh, mate anti uh, anti misogyny yeah, video too yeah, yeah. where of course we know that white men are the least misogynist part of the population in this city and yet once again they're tarred, tarred with this brush um, so I don't see how you can view it in any way other than being an attack mm -hmm. on, on, on white people. And of course, you know, it's Sadiq Khan is forever um, accusing the right of stoking the culture wars. Mm -hmm. And we, we know full well he's the grandmaster of doing all of this. We just saw it last week, he sent out an outrageous tweet yes. blaming the Clapham uh, homophobic stabbing mm -hmm. of two men on right-wing culture wars. Mm -hmm. As soon as a picture of the suspect, a black boy, was shown, suddenly he went silent, all the do-gooders went silent. Whereas, you know, had it been of a white person, there would have been a frenzy of, of media and mayoralty tweets about this. Yes, exactly. Um, I remember actually Douglas Murray in, the, in his column in the New York Post 
recently talked about a terrible case of a of a gay, I think it was a gay black guy, um, dancer, quite flamboyant, I think. She was killed by these guys on the street, and it's there was nothing really to choose between it and say like George Floyd really. Mm. But the difference was the guys who killed him were Muslims. Oh. And so yeah. suddenly silent yeah. radio silence it you doesn't see. fit the narrative yeah. it doesn't fit the narrative but the thing is, is this is the point isn't it with khan is that um he might have the kind of voters behind him or ethnic minority voters behind him and white liberals behind him but also he's got a broadcast media behind him hasn't he mm. i mean i know this woman we should have to go on the news all the time you know or, or itv news or whatever it was you know they were all basically you know, not say pro-Khan, mm. pro-what he kind of represented. Mm, mm. And they don't stand up as well to anti-white racist kind of sentiments that are well, being Well, no, because expressed. we deserve it. That's their view. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't understand with this idea of representation. When will people be happy? You know, no, as, Rafe was, no, as no. Rafe was saying, you know, TV adverts about, mm. at the UK, about 4% of the population are black. As I understand it, statistically, on adver TV adverts, about 40% of people are black. In, so it's way overrepresented. And you still get people like Lenny Henry coming out saying there's not enough black mm. people on TV, they're not represented. So what, when would you say yes with achieved representation? Does well, it yeah, have to be yeah, 100%? Exactly. Does it I have to be no white people in anything? And I, then, yeah, you know. yeah. I would say black people are 80% of ads rather than 40, <laughs> actually. I mean, no, I'm quite serious. Mm. I think 80%. I mean, I went, I went as well. I went, well, that's, that's yes. what I was just going to say, I went to see the film Oppenheimer, yeah. and you know, you have to sit through 15 to 20 minutes of adverts now before you see a film. Yeah. And the, everybody there was, was black or, or half black, half white or something. But then I thought, the, there are three times more Asians in this country, and why have not, do none of the woke brigade think that this is not racism, right? Is this not anti-Asian racism? Forget the being anti-white racism as well, but if you're so woke to be in favour of, of ethnic minorities, why have you alienated the vast, the biggest ethnic minority group of all, the Asians? I think it's quite ridiculous that they can't see the plank in their own eyes. But the, the point is, you know, when you say about when, when will it be enough, it's a very, very good point, you know, mm. because when people should say, uh, like the census came out in London. Uh, London is now uh, minority white British, 37%, as you pointed out. Um, people said, well, when, is it, when will you be happy? Mm. This was before Khan, this was with Livingston too. When are you going to be happy? It's always presented in this way of celebration that isn't this fantastic? You know, so you, so you think, well, what? She, what Actually, no, I do. It's a fact, yes. But I mean, why do I have to feel pleased about that there are less people like me? Mm. Which is what it amounts to, you know, I think. And this is what is coming over with this sort of stuff. I mean, we've had this, and we've had, as you pointed out, the, the homo homophobic murder. Do you think, just by way of ending it, do you think that? I sense, maybe I'm wrong, and I'm not using that word, the tipping point, because everyone uses tipping point, but I can't help feeling that there's a greater awareness now of this, actually. Yeah, I think so. I'm noticing that people are feeling more confident to name it as yes. anti-white racism. And I was seeing on Twitter some kind of gender-critical feminists who are generally position themselves on the left yeah. are now saying, hang on, this, this, is, this race stuff's gone too far. Why does my colour of my skin have to you know, link me to something bad just because yeah. I'm white. Yeah. Um, it, it, it has got, it is going way too far and it's happening really frequently and there's no pushback, not by pushback within, the, you know, the BBC. Yeah. There isn't, when people make comments about, oh, there's too many white people, it just, 
nothing gets said, people are allowed to say it. And I think people are, it's a bit like with the trans debate and in the beginning people were very nervous about speaking up about it. And I think with this race stuff, people are being more, becoming a bit more confident in saying, no, no, that's not okay, actually. You know, this hyper-racialization of everything, looking at every image and everything through the lens of race, it's too much. If even for people who are naturally on the left are saying now, you know, stop. Do you, think, do you agree with that? I hope so, very much so. I mean, I don't see much of that myself, I have to say, and I'm not very hopeful for the future. I think things, I, I, all of these tipping points, you know, we thought it was going to be trans women in sports, mm-hmm. but I just think these are all uh, hiding to nothing. I think things are going to get a lot worse before they, they get any better. I don't, see, I don't see evidence of this outside of our own bubbles, mm-hmm. outside of our own echo chamber. Within our echo chambers, people are getting more confident to say things. Yeah. And I think that's what we're seeing a lot of, be it gender critical feminists, or be it, be, it, be it people on the right, with that beyond those borders, though, I don't think we're really in touch enough with people out there, because when you get people like the, the president of the Royal College of Nursing saying that Lucy Ledby would have been found out earlier had she not been white, not just, not just Dr. Scholler, but the president of the Royal College really? of Nursing, you realise how deep this mm. cancer has mm. sunk into, into the, the, the body politic of all of our institutions and wider society at large, including the media. The only thing that gives me a bit of hope is in Canada, the youth of Canada are actually voting th- one third for con- the Conservative Party in Canada. But a serious uh, Conservative Party? Yeah, the same. Well, the same but yeah, but no, very much so now. And that just gives me a little bit of hope there that the, in Canada, which is now the capital of woke, we were always saying how left wing Canada is, that the youth there seems, well, a segment of them seems to be cottoning on to this fact. And whether we'll see the same thing in America and Britain remains to be seen. But that's the only thing I'm holding out hope for now. I think basically when you talk about. Uh, things getting worse. Obviously, that conjures up rather nasty scenes. But I mean, we can see already, because there's a report out this very day, we're filming this on Wednesday, from the IEA, uh, basically about the growth of hate speech legislation. So, for example, under Labour, we might well have uh, misogyny made into a hate speech crime, and certainly um, wrongly, um, what do you call it, pronouncing someone? Misgendering. Know, misgendering them, or whatever it is. You know, you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Uh, basically, these things will become offences under... That is certainly a stage worse, isn't it? It's mm. a stage worse. But I just fear that people are too um, passive now, that they'll just take it for a, I just hope this isn't true, mm. you know. And it's going to get... I mean, it looks like Sadiq Khan will probably stay in oh, position and, and Labour might likely get in. So that that does make me very unhopeful, I should say. Uh, we will still be here, though. Yeah. <laughs> we'll be here, as we always are, do we? Um, and we'll become more important, I think, therefore. Anyway, Ray, thank you very, very much. Amy, thanks so much. I, I think that was a very good discussion. I really would like to hear your views, particularly on the capital punishment question. Um, are you for or against? Okay, and uh, we, shall ha- we shall see you next time. In the meantime, have a very nice bank holiday weekend, won't you? Okay, take care. Bye. Hello. If you're enjoying the New Culture Forum channel and you believe in our mission, may I invite you to join our membership scheme at the link below or on our website, newcultureforum.org.uk. Our work is more important now than ever, and we have great plans ahead for the future, but we can't do it without your support. From as little as £3 per month, you can help ensure that we continue on our mission. As a member, you'll receive a range of benefits, including access to exclusive content, 
invitations to our private events, including here at our studios, free copies of our books, and much, much more, including, of course, our famous NCF mug. If you aren't able to become a member, then please help us by clicking this button and subscribing to our channel. It's completely free. Just remember to also click the bell icon so that you can get notifications when we post new videos. Thank you.